Uh, I am married to Rebecca. We've been married nine years, and she is from this big Dutch family with all kinds of kinds of kids, like nieces, nephews, everywhere. Uh, and I remember being shocked when I first got married to Rebecca and then like spent time around the family at the kind of things that were part of our family gatherings. Uh, you would pull up and there'd be a bunch of kids and the kids would yell at each other, which I guess kids do. Uh, and the kids would sometimes yell at the parents. And I was like, that's crazy. Uh, kids would ignore parents' commands, which I was like, starting to get uncomfortable. Uh, kids would just be like super dishonest. And like, I guess all of these things are normal and like kids just behave badly. Like all of us were kids and we behave badly. Uh, but it was more, the shock was more from like lack of reaction by the parents. Uh, because my dad is an immigrant and my dad doesn't play. Uh, I would never have been able to get away with that. Uh, I remember one time I yelled at my mom and when I woke up, from, you know, unconsciousness, I decided uh, I will never do that again. That's just a bad decision for me. Like, m the life that I had growing up was just different. Like, in my household, like, my mom and dad were adamant. Like, rule number one is you listen to your parents. That means right now. That doesn't mean tomorrow. That doesn't mean, like, when you get to it, there are no excuses. Mom starts talking, you start listening. And if you didn't, there were consequences. Uh, I tell you this not because I, I'm trying to gas up my parents. Like, I guess they did okay. I turned out okay. Uh, but I tell you this because it is a self-evident truth that children should listen to parents. That's how family structures work. Parents guide kids. That's part of being a family together. And what is true for family units is also true of God's people. God's family listens to God. God's family follows him. So our big idea for today is that the family of God follows God. So Numbers 2, we're starting a brand new series, uh, and the idea is the family of God follows God. We're going to talk about families living together, working together, and then walking together. So I'll read the first two verses of Numbers 2, and then we'll jump in. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So we're jumping into Numbers 2, and you might be wondering, like, that was a brutal experience, Freddie, 34 verses of names I can't pronounce that I would never read if I didn't have to. Like, why this book? Well, this book, it, it captures the story of Israel after the Exodus, and they are on a journey. And if for those of you who were here last week, I talked about Christian life being a journey, and you start the race, you run the race, and you finish the race. So there are things that we can learn from the people of Israel being on a journey, going through the wild, going to a destination, going to a promised land that they hoped to reach. There's a lot that we can learn from their story and then bring that into our own story. We, we start in Numbers 2, and we skip Numbers 1 because it, it's a, a census, just more of the same names, and we're introduced to a lot of the same characters, and Numbers picks up the story of Exodus. So if you're not familiar with that, I'll do a quick recap. Uh, Exodus started... It was the previous book, but it, it started with on the back end of 400 years of slavery. So the people of Israel, like they had this tribe. God had made outlandish promises to a man named Abraham. And then he told him, like, on not maybe as much of an outlandish promise, but he's like, you're going to be a slave for 400 and something years. And he was like, wait, what? But okay, it's going to work out. And then that actually happened. They ended up in Egypt, his, his people group. And they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the people of Israel cried out to God, and then God is the kind of God 
who hears people crying. So Exodus 6, 6 to 7, God raises up Moses and then says these things to him. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And if you've read through the book of Exodus, you know that that great judgment, that meant 10 plagues. And over a period of weeks and months, the people of Egypt lived through these 10 plagues. And they started to think, like, maybe we shouldn't be slave owners. Like, let's, let's let them leave. And they did. But then Pharaoh changed his mind. And in the end, Pharaoh dies in the Red Sea as the people of Israel walk through on dry, dry ground. And his army is swallowed up. So Israel escapes Egypt, right? And now they're walking through the wild. They get to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God enters into a covenant relationship with them. If you've not heard what the word covenant means, a covenant is a relationship that comes with benefits and obligations. There are things that you owe the other person. There are benefits that you gain by being in the relationship. And in the language of Exodus 6, the people of Israel were promised, I will be your God. And they were commanded, you will be my people. There's a relationship that's put in place. And then in Leviticus 26, we learn that if they obeyed, they would get blessings. They would have prosperity. They would have great harvest. They would have lots of kids. And if they disobeyed, they would have punishment. There would be, like, they would lose in war. There would be famine. There would be sickness. And eventually, there would be exile. So God enters into relationship, promises blessings, warns of judgment. Exodus 19 gives us a little bit of the picture of this kind of relationship. It says this, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sent out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, before Mount Sinai, while Moses went up to God. And then you skip forward a few verses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all peoples, for all the earth is mine." That's just God telling Moses, like, I rescued you for a reason. I rescued you so that you would be my people and I would be your God. It doesn't look like a wedding scene, but that's kind of the image, right? The closest parallel to this scene in our world is weddings. And I'm a young adult pastor, so you can imagine a big part of my job is, is officiating weddings. And I do premarital with a couple and we do a rehearsal and inevitably somewhere in towards the back end of the counseling and the front end of the rehearsal, Couples today are like super in vogue with writing their own vows. And people always do this because it, like, it's popular. It gives them the opportunity to personalize things. And I always push back because vows are meant to be the benefits and obligations of the marriage. Like that's what you're getting into. You're saying, I'm going to commit to this thing and, you know, for sickness or in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, in wealth and in poverty. And I'm, that's my, my commitment and the benefit of the relationship is this person's not leaving, but the obligation is that I can't leave either. Like you're committing to something. So Israel has a, a wedding service, if you will. They are committing to this kind of relationship with God. And the most important thing though, is if, if they're in a relationship, so God has rescued them, he's entered into a relationship with them, then you have to live together. Families live together. So we have this phrase, the tent of meeting here in, in verse chapter or verse two of chapter two. And this tent of meeting was the place where God's presence actually dwelt, right? There, there was a, a physical room. It was a tent and the people of God could see a cloud descending on that tent to remind them that God was there. 
There's a, a few things that are interesting, though. So there, the tent was present, so God's presence was there, but the people couldn't actually get that close. There was a, there was a separation between them and, and God. I want you to imagine with me that you're at Thanksgiving dinner, which for you will be in a month, for me is in two. I, I'm, I'm from the States. I celebrate real Thanksgiving in November, like God intended, and then you go turn up on Black Friday where you're not thankful for anything you have. Uh, but it's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving, right? You know, if your family does things right, you got the big spread and you, you know, you don't put it on the table because you're not a room. So you got to go through the buffet line, right? Like everyone's in the kitchen, just grabbing the plate. Pop quiz. You want a couple dinner rolls. How do you transport those dinner rolls? Uh, you would carry them, yes, I assume. But do they go on your plate? Do they go under the plate? Do they go in your pocket? And the pocket's a big move. Yeah, that's a bold move. I, I recommend it, actually. Then you can carry three or four. Uh, maybe. It depends on how well you know the family. Am I right? Uh, the correct answer is you hold the, the dinner roll in your, pocket, or in your hand, and I do it in my pocket. You caught me. You caught me. If any of you invite me to Thanksgiving, you will see me, and you will know. That's why I always show up with cargo pants. I'm ready. But... The point I'm trying to make is you're, you're holding the dinner rolls and you hold them under the plate uh, because if that dinner roll gets on the plate, it touches the gravy, it touches the cranberry sauce, right? And cranberry sauce and gravy stain, right? Humans have sin and sin stains. And God is the kind of God who will not be stained. So even though God dwells amongst the people, he has his own house and no one else gets to live in the house. God lives in the tent of meeting and the camp is all around it but God will not get gravy and cranberry sauce on himself. So Israel lives with God, right? And we see this like most vividly at the end of Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tents of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tents of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is with his people, but there's still a a distance between them. So in these first two verses of Numbers, there's a few things I really want us to notice. The first is God is at the center of the camp. If, if you had a picture, I should have a picture. Bam, there's a picture. If you look at the picture, the entire camp is one gigantic rectangle. And the people of God are arranged around the center. Right? What's most important always goes in the middle. You have the Ark of the Covenant inside the Tents of Meeting. You have the Tents of Meeting. You have Levites. And then you have the people of Israel arranged in four groups of three tribes. Right? But the most important thing always goes in the middle. I mentioned already, I grew up in the States. Uh, the U.S. has really strict flag codes, like if, if you're not familiar with this, where if you're going to hang an American flag, there are very specific rules on how you can hang it. So it has to be on a pole, and it has to be away from the building. And if you ever pair it with another flag, the American flag has to be higher. And if you pair it in a group, so something like you know a, a bunch of alliance flags, then it has to be the center one, right? You always put the most important thing the highest, the most visible, or dead center. The, the tent of meeting was that. It was dead center of the camp, and there was a cloud above it. It was the most visible thing. It was the most middle thing. It was the most important thing to the people of God. Their camp structure showed that now that they're in relationship with God, that has changed everything for them. Things are different. This is the most valuable thing. That relationship is the most valuable thing. Secondly, we, if you look at the picture again, we know that all of Israel is around the camp. 
Like no one gets left out. You have 12 tribes, right? An outlandish number of people, right? It would have been a massive camp and a massive marching formation. And everyone is represented. Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. All 12 tribes from the tiniest, from Gad and Dan to the biggest, Manasseh, Judah. You have a massive group of people and everyone has equal proximity to God. Everyone is in that outer shell within a sightline of the tents of meeting. We're told they are to face the tents of meeting. All people, all the tribes have equal access to God, equal proximity to God, because when God invited them into a relationship with him, they all got the same relationship. God does not play favorites. It's significant to us that everyone is included. If you know the story of these tribes, like not all of the people in them were good. But all of God's people, everyone in the covenant, gets to face the tent of meeting, has access to God. And third, as I mentioned before, there is still a gap between Israel and God, or Israel and, and Yahweh. If you look at the picture again, right, there's the people of Israel all around, and then the tent of meeting, and then you have these funny names, like the Gershonites and the Levites, right? These names of people that still separate the people of Israel from the tent of meeting. And these are all Levites. These are, some of them are priests, but all of them are Levites. And they functioned like arena security, right? If you've ever gone to a pro sports game, you know, the people with those outlandish yellow jackets that stand on the sideline, right? Or on the edge of the ice or on the edge of the field. And they don't ever watch the game, right? They're looking out. Their job is to prevent people from getting onto the court or getting onto the field. The Levites' job was that. They were, people were allowed to be close, right? You need the fans to make the experience. The people of God need to be close. They need to have proximity to God because they're in relationship with God. But you can't get on the field. Not everyone can go into the tent of meeting, right? Not even Moses could go in when the presence of God fully filled it. So the Levites are present. There's a gap between Israel and Yahweh. But all the people have access and God is in the middle, this, these two verses in Numbers chapter 2 give us the outline of the basic realities of Old Testament faith. God was close. Like you could literally see the tent. You knew that God was there, but you couldn't get that close. We had proximity or Old Testament Israel had proximity to God, but there would always be that gap. And the reality is that that gap will always exist between a holy God and sinful man unless God does something to close the gap. And if you fast forward a couple thousand years, that's exactly what God did. Uh, Jesus' earthly life was all about closing that gap. If you read the Gospel of John, he opens in chapter 1 by teaching us that that's who Jesus was. Jesus was God. The Word was God in John 1.1. And he closed the gap. John 1.14 says this. The Word, so the Word who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John uses this language to capture the image that we had from the end of Exodus 40. The, a cloud of glory filling the tabernacle. God's presence near. And then when he says dwelt among us, the word he uses is actually tabernacle. God tabernacled. God lived amongst the people. God was willing to get covered in gravy and cranberry sauce. God is willing to be near to people that are in fact sinful. People like you and me. And this reminds us that Old Testament faith was good. They had proximity to God. But New Testament faith is better. Not just proximity to God, but God actually comes to us. God closes the distance between sinful man and holy God. 
So the question that naturally follows is, if God has closed the distance, have you? If God has come down, so that's who Jesus was. Jesus was God. He came down. Jesus is God, pardon me, and came down to earth. Have, have you closed the distance? So God is present. God is close. God is near and invites you. I asked the same question last week, and I will ask it every single week because my, my biggest passion is to see all of you make a decision to follow Jesus. That's the idea for today, that the family of God follows God. Have you joined God's family? Families live together. Families work together. We'll continue in Numbers 2 in verse 17. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. This short verse just tells us that the camp was never meant to be a static thing. When God led the people away, they would all walk away, and they walked away in the same order that they camped. So people of Israel, people of Israel, Levites, tent of meeting, Levites, people of Israel, people of Israel. God, God was always separate from everyone else by these Levites. And the Levites, didn't, they weren't just arena security, right? They weren't just there to keep a distance between Israel and, and God's presence. Uh, they actually had a bunch of other jobs. If, if you read Numbers 3, so the next chapter, uh, we're told that the Lord said to Moses, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. So verse 7 tells us they're arena security, right? They're supposed to keep guard. They're not facing the tent. They're looking out. They're making sure people don't get too close, that people don't get close and, and face God's wrath. Verse 8 they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. So that last phrase, like these furnishings, like what an odd expression. And as you read through the rest of the chapter, you learn that each subgroup of Levites had a specific job. <clears throat> the Gershonites, uh, who on the west side of the tabernacle, they set up and took down the tabernacle with the coverings, the screens, the doors. So like, all of the more like soft things. So like fabrics, leathers, like those kinds of things. So like not the framing of the building, but like the interior design. Like they brought in the like utilities and services, those kinds of things. So not the actual building, but they contributed to this tent of meeting. The Kohathites on the south side of the tabernacle set up the Ark of the Covenant and the furniture and vessels inside the holy place. So they were the interior decorators, if you will. Like they they're in the tent of meeting, so the actual place where, where God's presence dwelled. And then inside the tent of meeting, there was a special room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. So this is where they kept the Ten Commandments in a little box. And this tribe, or this group of people of the Levites, looked after those things. They picked them up, they put them down, they transported them. So they had a specific job. And then lastly, the Merarites on the north side of the tabernacle, they set up and took down the tabernacle's frames, bars, and pillars. So the, the actual structure of the building, like someone has to pound posts into the ground and hook up the lines where you can actually hang the fabrics and the door openings, those kinds of things. So you had three groups of Levites and they each did something to set up this tent. So they, they had a responsibility, they had a job. And then lastly, Aaron, where Aaron and Moses were told are on the one side with their sons and their job was to like guard the entrance so no one could actually get into the tent of meeting and then to give sacrifices in this tent. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, you already gave me Old Testament history, and now you're giving me Old Testament priesthood, and I'm struggling to track with you. 
because why does this matter to me? Right? It, like, it doesn't affect my life. There ain't no priesthood in this life. But it does matter because there's a lesson for us to see in this. The people of God with the closest proximity to God had a lot of work to do. God gave them tasks, right? Christian faith is an act of faith. So bear with me a little bit. If you're reading the North you reading plan, like we're in James chapter one and two today, and you would have read James two, which reminds us that faith without works is dead. But closely related to that, if you're going to connect that image with what we're learning about that these Levites had tasks to do, uh, the New Testament actually speaks of Christians as priests. Like every Christian is considered a priest. So if, if we're going to combine what the New Testament teaches about Christian identity, that you are priests, that Christian faith is an active faith, with the example that we see of the Levites in Numbers 2, then it is a natural inference for us that Christian life requires service. Like Christian life requires our effort. We should do something, right? We should serve our family. Christians must be service-oriented people. So I want to ask you a few questions. In your day-to-day routine, so like the job you go to, the classes you're in, the family you live with, the friends that you see, uh, who can you help in your day-to-day? So I'm not asking you to take on a bunch of new things. I'm just saying in the life that you naturally live, so like the people you live with, the people you spend 40 hours a week working with, the people in your learning cohort, those people, how could you help or who are the specific people that you would be able to help, that you would be able to serve? And then how would you do it? Like if you were going to walk away from today and you're like, well, the Levites did like really practical things. They set up the room. Right? Like someone had to set up the room and they set up the furniture and they set up the decorations and they turn on the lights and they cleaned up after things. Right? They set an example in their efforts unto the Lord that Christians can also follow. So how can you help the people that you're already naturally around? Uh, it can be as mundane as just taking on extra chores in your house. You can volunteer to do dishes or volunteer to take out the trash. Uh, it can be as significant as helping a coworker with workload. Like you see them struggling, you know you don't have to, but you say to yourself, I- I'm going to because Christian life is an active life. Christian faith is a serving faith. We learn from the Levites example that Christians must be service oriented people. Families work together. Lastly, families walk together. I, the, the most important part of this passage is not the massive list of names. Like those are significant because they remind us that all of Israel was included. But the most significant part of this passage is the last three verses. So Numbers 2, 32 to 34. These are the people of Israel as listed by their father's houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all the Lord commanded Moses. So they kept by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. The reason these three verses are the most important is because they're a summary statement. And if, if you've you know, gone through English 10 or 11 or 12, and you remember anything you learned, uh, when an author tells you a summary of a story, it's significant. Like they want you to remember the things that they're closing the, the story with. And at the end of Numbers 2, Moses, who's writing this book, wants us to remember that the people of God did as the Lord commanded, thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded. Moses wants to make sure that we understand the appropriate, like the relationship and, 
that is supposed to be between God and his people. A relationship of obedience. When, when Yahweh, when God entered into a relationship with Israel and entered into this covenant with them, they became his, became his people and they had to obey him. That's part of the covenant, right? That's benefits and obligations of the relationship. Uh, for ease, like just to make it more colloquial, I said Israel walks with Yahweh. The image of walking, the idea of walking, isn't just literally walking, but it's obeying. It's following after God. And in Numbers 2, like we're, this scene that we're seeing, it comes after the people of Israel have been, been through the Exodus, but it has been over a year. Like if, if we were tracking like on a calendar, they would have been delivered. Like so for them, it was the second month. So we'll, we'll say, we'll use our calendar. Uh, they had the Exodus on January 14th, like, and they got out of Egypt. And they got to Mount Sinai a week later. But this story in Numbers 2 is February, but like 2024, like a full year later. And they're wondering, like, God, you took us out. We want to follow you, and they're actually doing it. Numbers 2 is a positive example of the people of God following after God, obeying his commands. This is significant for us. As we follow this story, we're going to see them fail a lot. As we go through the wild, we will see them grumble. Uh, We'll see them doubt God. We'll see them reject God's leaders. Israel got things wrong all the time. And in that, we we learn a really important lesson. Uh, The Old Testament story of Israel teaches us that obedience is possible. Like, you can understand God's commands. Like, we can understand the Bible. They can understand the Ten Commandments. Knowing what Christian life requires of you is not that difficult. It's quite simple. You just read the Bible. And you can actually know what God's will is for your life. So, obedience is possible. It is understandable. God desires to be obeyed and makes it simple in that he gives you clear commands. Living it out, though, much harder. Obedience is possible, but the self-control required to make it a reality is far harder. And the story of Israel is that they fell short over and over again. They were close to God. They had proximity to God, but they didn't actually follow through on their obedience. And I think if, if we pause here we, and we kind of reflect on our own story, I think we start to see some parallels, right? Where I'm like, I, I understand what Christian life is. Like, I, I know that there are some things I shouldn't do. There are some things I should do. Like, Christian life makes sense. I'm just struggling to do it. And we can look at Old Testament Israel and we're like, I can totally relate. I'm exactly the same as you. But there is one small problem you're not exactly the same as them. Old Testament Israel had the ability to obey, but no self-control. But New Testament Christians have a different story. New Testament Christians have some help that Old Testament Israel never did. In John chapter 16, Jesus has this great line where he tells his disciples, like, I'm leaving. And they're like, what? Why would you do this to us? Like, we thought you were like going to change everything. And he's like, no, I am. Uh, I'm leaving. And it is to your advantage that I leave, because if I go, I will send you the helper. I will send you the Holy Spirit. And they didn't fully understand the significance of that event. That when Jesus ascended to heaven after the resurrection, he sent the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit would fundamentally transform what following God looked like. Would fundamentally transform what walking with God 
meant for people. The command was always clear. It was just hard to do. But what the Holy Spirit does is it gives us the self-control required to actually follow through on God's commands, to actually live an obedient life. Uh, listen to what Romans 8 says. Romans 8, 9 to 11 says you, so not y'all, but like you Christian. So anyone who is a Christian, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, this is about you. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So all of us sin, all of us struggle, but you don't have to. That's what the pastor is saying. You don't, you're in, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So like if, if you're stuck in sin, it, you need to lean on the spirit. And if you don't lean on the spirit, it's because you don't have it, right? Verse, verse 10, if Christ is in you, the assumption is that he is. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so the Holy Spirit is inside you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The New Testament hope, the reality for Christians is not only do we have the ability to obey because we can understand it, we also have the self-control supernaturally given by the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. I think this is tremendously significant for us. I think that the, the idea that family walks together, that, that Christians follow God, Christians obey God, I think we all hear that. And there's a temptation to think, dude, I can never live up to that. Because you read God's word and you're like, the standard is crazy high. But we only struggle with that because I think we forget who we are. We compare ourselves to Old Testament Israel when that's not who we are. That's not our story. We're, if you're a Christian, you're a New Testament Christian filled with the Spirit of God that has the ability to resurrect dead people. So helping you in whatever sin you struggle with is not that hard for God. A fundamental reality of Christian life is that we have to obey. So if, let's say we went out for coffee, right? I'm a young adult pastor, that's what I do. I go to Starbucks like five times a week, right? And yeah, I know my, my point, like my stars is crazy high. Like it's always over a thousand. I'm just there over and over again. Uh, I don't even drink coffee, so it's kind of a, kind of a bummer. But I, I drink hot chocolate though, I love hot chocolate. So we're pulling up to Starbucks. We're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, right? You sent me an email, you sent me a text, and you're like, dude, I just want to take the next step in my faith. And I'm like, praise God, let's take the next step. So we're sitting down for coffee, and we just start talking. Like, okay, so like, what is Christian life to you? Uh, like, what, like, what do you experience as a result of being Christian? Like, what are the things that you do because you want to obey God. And you're just like, bro, like, you know, I'm in the word. I was at NYA this, this past week. And, you know, I signed up for a community group. Like, I'm just trying to get after it. Like, I'm trying to do all the things, be involved, be connected. You know, I, I'm doing my part. I'm, I'm trying really hard. But then the conversation turns a little bit. And I start to ask, okay, like, it sounds like you're putting in that effort. It sounds like you're, like, doing some things. Like, you're seeking after God. Uh, but what are the things in your life where, like, you're struggling to obey God's word? You're telling me you're reading it, right? So if you read it, you will get exposed. You will find something that you struggle to obey. So like, where are you battling right now? And you're like, I don't want to answer that. <laughs> right? I, but if we were honest and we talked through the things that young adults live through, we talked through your, your dating practices, right? The person that you choose to date, the way that you manage that relationship with the boundaries you put in place. Uh, if we talked about the entertainment that we consume, so the things that you watch, the things that you listen to, 
the things that you look up on your phone when it's late at night. Yeah, I think we would start to feel a little bit pressed, right? The, the language we use, the humor that we find funny, all of these things would start to expose us. I think where every single one of us faces the reality that I'm like, I, I actually, I do disobey. I know that I'm supposed to walk with God. I'm supposed to obey him, but sometimes I don't. So what, what hope is there for people that disobey? What I just talked about. The, the same hope from Romans 8. So it doesn't matter if you disobey because you're not alone. You might have the impression that like, dude, I've been struggling and it's just the way it is. But I'm like, that, that's not your story, actually. That's not who you are. If Romans 8 is about you and it's addressed to all Christians, the assumption is that you are a Christian, right? If you've believed in God, if you're battling the flesh, then you have the Spirit of God inside you, the Spirit of God that resurrected Jesus from the dead, and the Spirit of God is trying to produce something in you, trying to give you the self-control to help you walk with God. And it's not just because God wants you to check the boxes. It's because God wants you to have an abundant life. What sin does is it, it breaks us. It ruins our lives. And the damaging effects of it are felt in our entire world. God's desire for you in giving you the law, in giving you directions, isn't to crush your joy. It's to lead you to life. It's to protect you from the damaging effects of sin. I urge you, do a little reflection and walk with God. Obey him, not just in the things that you do like to seek God, but in turning from sin. Family walks together. I started tonight by telling you about my own childhood, right? Like the discipline that I received and the expectations in my household. Uh, sharing about our own upbringings is always kind of a weird thing because no family does it perfect. Like there is no parent that was 100% right every single time they exercise discipline. There's no parent that sets appropriate rules every single time and is reasonable and understanding and perfectly gracious and merciful. That was not my parents' story. That is not my story. I have kids, and when they get big and old, they will say the same thing about me. You know, my dad was an immigrant. He didn't play, and, you know, he did things. Some, some things well, some things not well. God is not limited in the same way that we are. When God invites you into his family, and God calls you to walk with him, to live with him, to work with him, to walk with him, it's not meant to be a burdensome thing. It's not something that is unreasonable or joy-killing. It is a thing that ultimately leads you to life. If you are a Christian, if you're part of God's family, you must listen, you must obey. The family of God follows God. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll invite the music team back up. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we're able to spend time in your word and frankly, Father, to be challenged. Lord, we recognize that all of us do struggle. And when we talk about sin, Father, we, we feel uncomfortable. It's, it's not a pleasant conversation. It's hard to look in the mirror and be aware of the many ways that we get it wrong. Lord, but my hope is that people would be reminded today, not just that they get it wrong, but that by the power of, of the Spirit, they can get it right that the resurrection power of Christ is in them and will help them turn from sin. Father, I pray for every single Christian in this room that they would pursue holiness, that they would live for you, that they would walk with you. And for those who are not yet Christian, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Help them turn. You welcome everyone. 
into your family. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.